the reason I made We English was was a kind of that there was this inward looking where the Brits were kind of starting to look at themselves and and in some ways it felt like the English were the most bemused about who they were you know there's always been a much stronger sense of Scottish and Welsh identity that the English seem to flounder around a bit and don't quite know whether they're English or British you know how do they define themselves I'm Peter Holiday, and this is The Land Behind. Join me in conversation with a range of guests from photographers to anthropologists as I venture beyond the visible in search of different ways of interpreting questions of photography, perception and place. In his book Fields of Vision, the British geographer Stephen Daniels describes the landscape image as not merely a reflection of or a distraction from more pressing social, economic or political issues. It is often a powerful mode of knowledge and social engagement. It is with this quote in mind that I am very pleased to be joined in this episode by the Brighton-based British photographer Simon Roberts. After more than a decade of a British political system characterised by a tiresome succession of Conservative Prime Ministers, the Coalition Government of 2010, the Scottish Independence Referendum of 2014, the Brexit Referendum of 2016, the appalling assassinations of the politicians Joe Cox and David Amos, and finally the COVID pandemic. I was keen to revisit Simon's work about the British landscape to consider what his images of the island we both know as home might be able to tell us about the nation's current situation and the uncertain direction of its democracy. We begin by discussing the historical relevance of his photo book, We English, first published in 2009 and named by Martin Parr, as one of the best photo books of the noughties. As I listened to Simon describe his experience photographing England's social landscape in the decade preceding Brexit, we consider how his critical large format perspective of Britain's cultural landscape foreshadowed Westminster's current political predicament. Commissioned as the official artist for the 2010 general election, Simon meanwhile explains what it was like to get up close and personal with the democratic process during a key event in Britain's political calendar. Whilst Simon's unique large format perspectives draw their sense and significance from a long and rich tradition of British landscape representation, they demonstrate a challenge to traditional stereotypes and idealised cliches of Britain's visual geography. Simon's photographic depictions of Britain's high streets, beach resorts, national parks and leisure piers, whilst not identical to the visions of other contemporary British photographers, such as Martin Parr or Jem Southam, reveal neither the same England as Turner or Constable. Rather, Simon's work exists as a critical social commentary on the conflicting perspectives of Britishness from the midst of Britain's post-industrial, post-imperial landscape of the early 21st century. For me, there is something strangely familiar about the cultural atmosphere of Simon's English landscapes. I may have grown up north of the border, but as the son of an English father, I have fond memories of childhood holidays in the Lake District, Cornwall and the Yorkshire Dales, and so the landscape of England is by no means foreign to me. Not only do Scotland and England share a long history, there is no doubt that the two nations remain steeped in the same visual culture. Furthermore, the question of what it means to be British is perhaps more relevant today in Scotland than it ever has been, as I imagine it must also be for any other nation in the United Kingdom in the post-Brexit era. Serving as a window 
onto the landscape of a nation caught amidst the deep complexities of a rapidly changing world. Simon's work tells us a story that is not yet finished. It is therefore impossible to exhaust their meaning in a single glance. Each time I look at his images, there is always something more to be seen or another question to be asked. As such, there were many more thoughts which only came to me once I'd had a chance to reflect on our conversation after the fact. For Simon's images are not simply a historical catalogue of Britain's unsure times. In his everyday scenes of Britain's cultural geography, there is something profoundly relatable. At a time when the nation's arts budget is left stretched and underfunded, Simon's work emphasises the social power of the landscape picture to provoke difficult questions about where we've come from, where we are, and where we might yet wish to go. The answers of which remain undetermined and open-ended. As I discussed with Simon during our conversation, whether or not we have a final answer to these kinds of questions is perhaps irrelevant. That we dare to pose the question to each other in the first place is what counts. I therefore hope you as our listener will also be inspired by our conversation to think about your own relationship to the time and place where you stand, no matter where you might happen to find yourself. If you find any value at all in my conversation with Simon, feel free to follow the podcast on Instagram at The Land Behind Podcast or tell us what you think in the comments. Please also consider supporting the podcast on Patreon by visiting the link in the description. So, without further ado, my conversation with Simon Roberts now begins. Roberts, thank you for speaking to me this afternoon um, about your work. I've been a big fan of your work for a long time. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, I remember seeing this book, We English, or work from it when I was first studying um, a bachelor's in Glasgow, as I told you before. But at that time, I was more concerned about making pictures than perhaps the, the, the deep layers of meaning that are within a work. And so looking at this, this uh, work in print more than a decade after it's been after it was first published, in light of Brexit and in light of recent events, uh, I think it's a very powerful social commentary on on what's been happening in 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 Britain over the past. Well, really, since since well, you started the project in two thousand and seven, but really, yeah, I think the the politics started to get crazy probably from, from our perspectives, after 2010. Well, yeah, that's right, yeah. And as I said, your, your, your photographs, I've, I've loved your work, your photographs offer us an, a standard of, in my opinion, of what British landscape photography should look like. And um, how, how, would, how would you describe your practice? Where are you right now? <laughs> um. Good question. I, I, do you know what? I'm not entirely sure where I am now. Um, I'm, I'm in, uh, well, I can tell you what I'm definitely in. I'm in the midst of three children uh, at school and college and um, juggling, trying to survive as an artist and uh, a dad and, and um, you know, live, if you like. Um, it's a strange time, you know, post-COVID, the arts are really being stretched and squeezed more so than ever before. You know, we've got a cost of living crisis. There's, 
the implosion of the Conservative government, um, it, everything feels that it's not under sure footing. And I think my work feels a bit like that as well. I feel in the same place as maybe um, the country does in the sense that uh, I'm slightly unsure about future direction. And I, and I say that in terms of where I think we're going as a nation, but also um, in terms of what I'm doing with my work. And that's not necessarily something that I need to worry about. It's, I guess, since finishing Mary Albion in 2017, I've really just been exploring other ways of making work um, as a reaction against the fact that I've been making a particular style of landscape photograph for almost 15 years. And it just felt that I'd almost hit the end of the road with it in terms of the fact that it, it started feeling to me like it had become formulaic. And I think as soon as something becomes formulaic, it becomes dangerous um, to kind of just rest in that position. And so I've just try to look at other ways of making work i mean i guess i i guess in some ways i'm 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 really just a storyteller in essence because i'm you know i have a particular narrative i want to to tell and i have to try and find a way of translating that narrative into some visual form i mean i'm a visual storyteller um but that could be you know photography it could be video it might be an installation so um I guess I'm melding elements of my geographical background, a photography background, um, my interest in documenting time and place, and the fact that the work has to have some meaning. I mean, I'm not interested in making something that is just nice to look at. If it doesn't ask some questions then then i think it's for me it's slightly irrelevant mm. so your work is really an artist's appropriation of culture within a particular time in history yeah possibly i mean it's also it's also just a way of self-expressing and trying to make sense of contemporary history mm. as well as thinking reflecting back if you like so a lot of the work, I guess, I see as sitting in a lineage of, say, for instance, if we look at photography, I would certainly see the work that I was making with We English and Mary Albion as being within a, a, a particular mode of exploring the British landscape or British society within British photography. And that really all I was doing was adding another element of that jigsaw puzzle so it's 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 almost like it's a continually building mosaic mm -hmm. and, and each generation adds something else or each and i'm i just felt that particularly in 2008 that there wasn't much being made around that time and that i i wanted to add something to that to that pantheon if you like and, yeah, and yeah. i felt there was a kind of gap that needed to be filled but by 2017 i felt that you know maybe it was time for somebody else to you know to do it and you know, there's plenty of other kind of people making work about Britain and um, and maybe and also Brexit through me because I didn't. It was such a huge. 
you know, huge event politically and socially, but I couldn't work out how on earth to represent it. You know, there was nothing to see really. It was this, it was this three years of just kind of words circulating society and, mm-hmm. and, and it was trying to think about how you can extract that and actually make something meaningful from mm-hmm. it. I mean, I guess now, you know, since 2001, uh, sorry, 2021, we, you know, we're starting to see uh, elements of what it means, you know, kind of trucks at the borders and, you know, more, more kind of, you know, the fights against um, immigrants, uh, yeah. migrants rather um coming uh, across the channel etc so you know there are kind of more visible um manifestations of of what it it means um yeah how close are you <clears throat> to that physically to the coast uh about 250 meters all right so um, you're in brighton at the moment i'm in brighton yeah yeah, yeah. um but of course we don't i mean there's there's no you know, we're too far from the coast of France here for there to be any, you know, sense of seeing that. But mm-hmm. I'm quite close to the Seven Sisters, which is, of course, a, a landscape which is so intertwined with notions of Britishness. Um, you know, throughout recent history, it's 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 an image that is echoed through uh, uh, art and and culture um, and politics. You know, the, the you know, it was used quite heavily by the Brexiteers to, in in the similar way that the war artists were using it in the Second World War to say, you know, this is what we're fighting for. You know, we're fighting for our 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 island, our, our sovereignty. Have you made work there? Does this landscape feature in in your own work? Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, it's that the the last the last photograph in Mary Albion was made there. Deliberately, I mean, I wanted to make a photograph that represented. Oh yeah, and I think this, this I know that in time. image. It's just people <laughs> above the cliffs. Y- yes, yeah. standing um, perilously close to the edge, mm-hmm. or precariously. So this is the, close to the edge. Um, this is the the literal frontier of of Britain. Yeah, yeah. I guess in terms of the way I think about making work, it's it's often. I'm considering the landscape before I've even photographed it. So a lot of the work I make isn't just about kind of driving around. It's actually about already considering where I want to be making a photograph. Mm -hmm. So there are conceptual threads to your process. Yeah. 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 I mean, you can't beat a bit of happenstance. Absolutely Um, not. That's essential. I mean, I mean, I know in your kind of uh, brief that you sent me, you mentioned Joel Sternfeld and, you know, I mean, he's the kind of king of, uh, a happenstance, you know, yeah. like the 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 elephant being uh, hosed down, um, it come off the back, you know, back of the lorry, and it's just such an extraordinary picture. Or the fireman, you know, putting yeah. out the fire by the pumpkin farm. Yeah, um, American prospects. It's, it's just, it's just, it's uh, yeah. There's there's always some stuff to discover, um, but also I think planning is a, a, a very key element to to what I do. Mm-hmm. But. I do see very uh, similar stylistic elements and similar questions between American Prospects and a project like We English. And I, ju- I am curious as to how much of an influence Sternfeld has been on your work, now that you mention it. Uh, yeah, I mean, now he has been a very big influence. I mean, he's one of the... I mean, I guess my influences started with the 
you know, the, the kind of British social documentary photographers of the 70s. You know, I'm, I'm a child of the 70s and early 80s. Yeah. Um, grew up in, in a kind of middle-class hinterland of London and, you know, it's, you know, pure Thatcher territory. You were um, probably my age when you, similar a similar age to me when you were making We English then. So I was, um, God, how old was I? Um, how long ago was it? 2008. I was probably mid-30s. All right, so slightly uh, older late than me. Mid-30s. I'm 49, so... Yeah, I've lost my train of thought. Oh, yeah. And, you know, my mum's from the Lake District from a very kind of working class background. So I kind of, you know, grew up with this interesting dynamic between, you know, the working class and the upper middle class and, you know, this kind of tension that was always around the household um, and the kind of conversations, you know, that that were taking place, you know, always kind of Um, anti-Tory. And, uh, you know, even though we were in this kind of blue rinse bubble, um, um, it was almost almost like living in a in a uh, a Martin Parr photograph from mm-hmm. uh, Cost of Living. No, is it Cost of Living? Um, um, you know, Tupperware parties and uh, you know that kind of uh, garden parties with uh, picnics. So you were you were growing up uh, during the same time as Sternfeld was making a lot yeah, of his so, work. Yeah, so I was you know having gone from looking at you know Paul Graham. I then, and that kind of A1, I then started, you know, looking at the American, you know, um, movement and Sternfeld being one of the kind of key characters that I was interested in, probably the most important in terms of influence. Um, And then I kind of a bit later on switched to looking at the Dusseldorf School. I was, you know, I was interested in the early work of uh, Gursky and Thomas Struth, Thomas Ruff, but then also... Um, uh, some of the, you know, more contemporary photographers like Peter Bilobrowski, you know, who, who did a, a, a work on, uh, on his own homeland. So there was, you know, the kind of various people working in large formats in a particular way, often on based on journeys that, that I really um, felt akin to. You didn't begin as a photographer, did you? Well, I guess I guess in some ways I did. I just didn't study it. I mean, I was photographing, uh, you know, as a lot of, you know, a lot of photographers they get a camera quite early on in their teens, and they, you know, I was I did did it at school, but then decided not to study at university. Yeah. Um, and studied uh, human geography at Sheffield University for three years. And what was really interesting during that time, that particularly in, in, in the wing of cultural geography, there was a lot of cultural geographers that were looking at art and the visual image and photography in terms of geographical references and, and, and kind of points to actually how we understand the landscape and uh, ideas of uh, nationhood um, around circulation of imagery, um, and I guess a lot of them were kind of referencing people like Burge's ways of seeing and and um, other kind of texts that you know, banal nationalism by um, Michael Billig. You know, so these certain it was something that I was kind of aware of. And I mean, I you know, I still had a camera. I was still taking pictures while I was at university. It just wasn't something I was 
I wasn't like doing photography classes or anything. Mm. It was just something I, you know, I had in my, on me. Did you study under Stephen Daniels? What's your relation to him? No, I didn't study because Steve, Stephen Daniels was at, was at Nottingham. Um, and I didn't meet, uh, I, I didn't meet Stephen until afterwards, but I knew, I knew his work, you know, I knew his, his, his um, fields of vision book um, was something that I used for my dissertation. Interesting. My dissertation was actually on was about photography. It was out. It was based on. It was actually looking at uh, images of East Africa that are used to sell holidays to tourists in the West. Uh, particularly these overland tours where you go on a truck, you know, and you spend eight weeks or sixteen weeks driving around sub-Saharan Africa. And the idea was that we'd that I would look at how you know, companies like uh, Kamuka Travel and um, Outward Bounds, they kind of used certain metaphors and imagery to pro- project you as this going in the footsteps of the great explore- explorers like Stan Stanley and Livingston, mm-hmm. you know, going out to the dark heart of Africa. You know, there's all these certain cliches that were being represented to us as what to tourists um well they have they like like to call them travelers not tourists so what i did is i kind of mapped these these different representations and then i went on one of these tours for um nine weeks from kenya to south africa with 18 other people and uh, basically did interviews and you know kind of um what's the word um i can't remember the name of the method of um research but you know on the ground um to try and understand how somebody's experience of a place changes after they actually um experience the place and the people and one of the most interesting things was that when everybody got back many people were from from the uk they met in london and everybody showed their photo albums because of course everybody had a film camera i mean this is what 1994 95 and of course, the in most cases, the photo albums they they produced reinterpreted the literature, the marketing literature that, that, that they that they were sent or that they were advertised or or their expectations of it. You know, they were ticking off various kind of cultural. You know, there's a picture of the Maasai Mara. There's a picture of a you know a boy with a Coca Cola bottle with his hand out, you know, begging. There's a picture of a lion. Um, it, you know, there's this certain kind of visual stereotypes that that almost we feel like we need to collect so actually even after experiencing a place often those stereotypes are, are not um pushed against yeah um, and we're, we're really just trying to validate a particular experience um so in that way the photography had all you know was, was still playing a role it just wasn't i just didn't do the kind of traditional art school uh you know routine if you like yeah so really, you've been challenging our assumptions from the beginning. In in what way? Attempting to challenge our assumptions uh, using the camera before, uh, you, yeah, perhaps I guess before, I, before you even started taking it seriously. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, whenever I undertake a project, I'm always already thinking about, you know, what why am I doing it, and what are the what am I trying to push against? Mm-hmm. I mean, Russia was was the, the prime example. I mean, the first major project I did was was spending a year in Russia. Motherland. And of course, you know, 
motherland. And of course, I was loaded with stereotypes and preconceived ideas of what this place was like Mm -hmm. from, you know, from from childhood James Bond baddies to playing the board game Risk, where, you know, everybody wanted to capture Kamchatka, you know, which was this kind of weird, wild place in the far west of um, uh, sorry, far east of, of, of Russia. So these and cold so, cold war cliches. Yeah, all yeah. the yeah. And <laughs> you know, and then and then through photography, you know, having seen so many photographs from Western photographers coming out since the fall of communism, you know, mostly black and white, mostly talking about collapse, deterioration, decay, you know, the kind of yeah. um certain those images of of, 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 of revolution. Yeah, you know. not just revolution, you know, this was after the revolution. This was, you know, images of you know, drunk Russians, you know, or poverty and kind of, um, and, and, and that's not to say they're not true. You know, all, all, every, all of these things have, have some truth to them. It's just a case of when that's all you see, you know, you, you get a particular, um, and of course at this point in time, I mean, this was 2004, there there wasn't this, there wasn't at that time really the opportunities for Russian photographers to be getting a lot of their work out. You know, there were plenty of photographers making work, Russian photographers making work, but there weren't the same the same ability as there is now to to transmit those images. Um, I mean, the internet existed, but it was still pretty new. There was an agency called Photographer.ru that was starting to represent Russian photographers abroad, um, but they were very at the time they were very vanguard, you know, the vanguard of, of, of this. Um, so even with that project, you know, I was constantly, almost daily, saying to myself, okay, you know. Why am I going out to photograph today? What am I going to photograph? And how is that going to challenge maybe what I'm expecting to find? Um, because it was very important to me that that book didn't just become a cliche. But how challenging was it as a British person in Russia not to fall into cliches? You know, oh, as, a, as an outsider. Yeah, I mean, everything's romantic, isn't it? Everything's, uh, as soon as you go out of your own your own small world you know everything becomes a photograph yeah it's literally just like oh shit look at that i've got a photograph of that um but then you do find yourself you know navigating a little bit towards the oh look there's the dirty side you know there's the you know a crumbling soviet architecture doesn't that look great ruined porn you know i'll take a picture of that um and and so i'll go I, i would do that but then i'd turn around and go look there's a new bank, you know, there's this glossy building with nobody yeah. in it because nobody's got any money. So, you know, let's take a picture of that. And then who's going into the bank? Oh, look, you know, that person looks quite interesting in a suit, yeah. you know, rather than the, the drunk on the paving stone outside, you know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, so, so it was just all of those kind of all the time trying to, and, and also very little of the journey was planned. So it's not like I was saying to myself, you know, I had a shopping list of places I was going to go to. It really was, pretty chaotic existence you know we i was traveling with my wife and we just you know literally go to one town and then somebody would say oh you should go there or we'd meet somebody who'd take us somewhere and it, you know it was really i wanted it to be much more about being almost handheld through the place rather than me bulldozing my way through as this mm-hmm. you know middle class white photographer you know with a uh, um, a, a certain axe to grind, or not? Maybe not. Axe to grind. I'm not quite sure of the word, but you know yeah. what I mean. It's this. Um, but there's already thing. there's already a certain nostalgia to your work, I think, because that was a particular moment in Russian history. There was all this hope 
it was in the decades just after the fall of the um, Soviet Union. And in the same way that there was that, I was, I was, I was quite young during the years of new labor, but again, there was that association of hope and cool Britannia and of, of, of a change coming after the, the conservative years of the eighties and early nineties. Um, I was born just at the tail end of that in 1992. So, you know, I'm probably too young to fully understand what was going on, but you know, there was this hope in Russia too. And mother, we, we English tails off where motherland finished as well. And they're, they're already, in my opinion, projects that are extremely nostalgic in that sense that there was a, that, that this, this hope has somewhat been lost in, in the, mm. in the past decade, uh, with, uh, Brexit, COVID and, and well, what's going on now in Ukraine. So there's, there's that, there's a, there's a deep and poignant historical perspective to your work, which goes far beyond the, the photographs. How, how nostalgic is, is the work to you now? I mean, th- these were, these were arguably works that made your career. They were groundbreaking in terms of, um, your own path as an artist. How do you feel that nostalgia in in the work now? I mean, I, of, of course, you know, everything becomes nostalgic after time. It's just a case of how quickly it becomes nostalgic. Um, I mean, starting with Russia, you, I guess that there so much has changed in the last year that, I mean, it was really just starting, you know, this, this was like the early years of Putin and, and there was still an element of free press, but, you know the the kind of changes that have taken place now were ex, you know have accelerated quite fast and so it does feel that a lot has changed there in terms of the we english to some extent if we take covid as an example as soon as a lockdown was 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 announced a, a lockdown was released we all fled ran you know jumped in our cars and went to a park to a beach to an inland a river to a mountaintop you know we we went into these rural idylls that are so connected to our sense of place our sense of identity so in some ways you could re still you, you could redo we english i mean the pictures are not nostalgic in that sense what makes them nostalgic i guess in some ways is is elements of what we're wearing maybe you might be able to see a element of economic cost of living crisis you know the picnic might not be a waitrose it might be a a little you know the the kind of litter that we see might have changed what people are wearing might be slightly different actually somebody made a really interesting point um about one of my photographs i was i was showing in paris last weekend and i was showing a series of pictures um and it'd be interesting to talk about this because this is partly why i started stop making the these type of photographs so i was commissioned to make some we english style photographs in france which was quite funny you know this idea that you know can you come and do what you do in we english but do it in normandy um and i did it and it was quite interesting um but anyway one of the pictures i took was le Havre, um which is a famous uh, port on the uh normandy coast and you know it's just kind of littered with people and it's just you know and in the background you've got this huge shipping container um 
And this this chap came to me. He said, "When was this picture taken?" And I said, "2014." I said, "Why?" He said, "I can't see hardly any tattoos." He said, "If you go to Le Havre now, almost everybody, particularly the women, will be covered in tattoos." Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that is you know just something that yeah. has changed enormously. I and mean, if you go to Brighton Beach true, now, it's exactly actually. the same. You know, yeah. so, so there are elements of of how we identify and how we dress yeah, these and, subtle and what changes. we do to ourselves, these changes that, that, that will be very obvious. Mm-hmm. But to some extent, those we English landscapes will, will still be the same. You know, it's, there's a, there's an element of, of time, which doesn't, it takes a lot longer to change. Yeah. If, if you see what I mean. Um, I guess, I guess what we English does do, it creates a certain mood of, I think the 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 main mood is one of people at ease with themselves or at ease with time. But then every so often there are pictures, and this was a deliberate thing, was that to add this sense of tension, you know, so some of the pictures are there there's an element of it that doesn't feel quite right. And I and I did I deliberately added that in the pictures because i mean one of the reasons that i even made this work was because it came out of the um 77 bombing in 2015 you know the terrorist attack and there was this that was a, an enormous um psychological impact on on the british psyche you know we were being attacked from within um and that had not happened for a long time you know people born here you know, were were you know taking arms against mm-hmm. um, uh, Londoners or you know just just ordinary people, and so the you know even from 2015 there was starting to to be this sense of kind of unease. You know, there were certain you know tensions in certain communities over immigration. Um, you know, there there was it was playing out already in our politics. Um, um, Sorry, 2005, I'm talking about, not 2015, in 2005. The 7-7 bombing was in 2005. Yeah, so that was... So So partly the reason I made We English was was a kind of... Th- there was this inward looking where the Brits were kind of starting to look at themselves. and And in some ways, it felt like the English were the most bemused about who they were. You know, there's always been a much stronger sense of Scottish and Welsh identity that the English seem to flounder around a bit and don't quite know whether they're English or British. You know, how mm-hmm. do they define themselves? And I guess the, um, you know, smaller groups uh, find it easier to define themselves against a bigger group. Mm-hmm. You know, when there's somebody else, it's easier yeah, to yeah. kind of get to so, Stephen Daniels uh, touches on that in the essay that um, we English presents a conflicting vision of what England is. Um, yeah. And I, I just wanted to make a side note. It's also interesting uh, to consider this question of Englishness. It, you made work in, in France, in Normandy. And this was a landscape yeah. that's not that not only looks similar to the southeast of England, but it was once claimed by the English kings during the Middle Ages. So it, it was, in a sense, once English at one point in history. 
So yeah. it's just interesting how even in France, you can't get out. There are these historical undertones of, of Englishness as well. Yeah. And there was a very close connection you know, up until the 18th century between the between Normandy and 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 the uh, particularly the kind of south coast, um, but of course the you know the, the two world wars destroyed much of northern France, and so that sense of the quaint French villages almost disappeared, and so the the English experience of holidaying in France changed, you know, as they were rebuilt, you know, with these uh, very modernist buildings, and so there was a bit of a loss, if you like, in terms of that relationship. Um, and so, I mean, I, I guess that was why I was interested in doing the work because, particularly the north coast of France, it, the, the, it did feel quite similar. And of course, at one stage, millions of years ago, they were they were connected. So, so there was, you know, yeah, the kind yeah. of ge- geology of these two places is very similar. Um, and, but I was, I guess, with that project, I was interested to see if there was a, a defining difference between. Uh, how leisure operates in these two different countries. Yeah, um, yeah. What conclusions did you come to? They're better at their picnics than we are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're kind of much better at but picnics than they are. I've I've seen some of this work and it it could have been made in England if I didn't know any better. Y- yes and no. I mean, uh, the, the, some of the pictures you look at, it, 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 there is this universality about it, but then there's other things where there's a sense that I mean, Patong, for instance, that picture of the Patong, they just they just look French. I mean, I can't really put my finger on it, but there is just a kind of sense that I mean, we're not talking, you know, it's in the details, the, yeah, but it's in the details. There is a kind of real sense, um, and in the architecture, you know, the kind of very. Um, unique kind of style of housing um and so and i I guess that's one of the things about the way i make photographs is that is that you have to look closely that there Mm. isn't a quick there isn't a quick fix and 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 at first glance and interestingly actually a number of people that came into the exhibition that didn't know anything about it in in france in paris came in and uh you know they saw my name on the door simon roberts and, and they saw the pictures they went oh is this britain you know, so even the French initially just thought it's a British photographer showing us pictures of Britain. Mm-hmm. And then it's only when they look closer and they went, oh, wait a minute, that's, you know, that's uh, that's near Rouen. You know, I can tell by that architecture or that, that that's, a you know, that, that viaduct or whatever. And yeah, so it was the viaduct for it, me that gave it, it away. Yeah, it was it, and, it could have been an English viaduct in Manchester. But when you look more closely at it, there was something slightly not. There was just something that wasn't English about it, and it was it was as yeah. you say, it was the architecture. And and bizarrely, it's a German train; it's not even a French train. So the the, the French were a bit confused about it as well. But um, um, so 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 it was. It's once that you you start trying to really read the photograph and take note of what you're looking at that these different narratives are revealed, and that you can then start understanding a bit more about time and place mm-hmm. um but i think that's why your and- work's so powerful it's it's because it's precisely because they're simple in the most complex way there's a paradox to their style and that's why they're so relevant because they are 
pictures of daily life, whether in England or France or Russia. And so they'll, they'll always have this timeless quality to them. They're not only a historical record, but as I said at the beginning, they're a social commentary and they provide a, a space. They create a space for us to reflect, just as we are in this conversation, about what's gone on on both sides of the channel in the past two decades, which is an incredibly complex and open question. Um, and by no means a simple task. Uh, mm. and, and so, but uh, yeah, it's precisely because they're, they're so, they're so identifiable. They're pictures of streets and buildings and common places mm. and places of, of congregation and common belonging. Um, and so that, that's, that's why they're timeless. That's why in a sense they'll, they'll last forever. Yeah, I mean, I do get, sometimes I can't, I do feel a little bit uncomfortable about that, that idea because, and I, and I guess part of the reason I then went on to make Mary Albion was that, that to, for some people there was this reaction against We English, that it was, that, that it was building on cliches. It is at risk of that actually, yeah. Um, and, and I, and I, I still don't think there is in the sense that if you look closely at the pictures, then you can really you can see the you know the different class ethnic diversity um social incohesion in some of the pictures so i do think there is but you have to you can't just glance at the work you can't just quickly look at it and just say oh it's another picture of a green space you know it's oh it's too um, romantic yeah. because um, I think that's it's, it's not that's romantic the, at all in my eyes. That's the danger, but you know, it's a danger that that's how these sometimes can be read. You know, even with the French work, to some extent, you know, you can look at it and think, "Oh, that's that's a really interesting scene," mm -hmm. but at the same time, not understand maybe, you know, the threat that Marie Le Pen currently um, poses in some of these communities who are yeah, voting, yeah. you know, the far right in in northern France and. Um, and so there, there's sometimes these subtleties that that I try to consider. Well, how can I then? You know, how is that something I can also bring into the work? Which is partly why I often use commentary in the books. Mm -hmm. And you know, some people think that's a you know that you shouldn't have titles and you shouldn't you know or maybe not titles but you shouldn't have commentary that people should just read the picture for what it is. But I disagree. I think the way that you understand a landscape can change dramatically if you understand something about the context. Absolutely. Um, and you know, there are several pictures, even in We English, which once you once you know a bit about the history of that place, the way that you look at it changes, mm -hmm. and it can't help but change. Now, you can choose whether you want to read it that way or not by not reading the text, but I think it, it can yeah, it, it can um, yeah, absolutely agree with take that. away a bit of a veil uh, of, of, of your own stereotypical goggles that you wear that make you read a picture in a particular way. Mm -hmm. um, you spoke about the threat that Le Pen poses towards these towns and Northern France. And well, all, all over France, actually, but yeah, not where I was photographing as but well. But yeah. one, of, one of the main reasons why she appeals to these towns is because of their, 
they're post industrial they're traditionally post industrial working class towns that feel that they've been uh, forgotten as well. Um, your view of England is is in my opinion decisively post industrial as well. Um, it's not it's it's the England two centuries after um, Turner and Ruskin and all these different thinkers and artists who were very worried about the the industrialization of the English countryside. We're in the 21st century now and you're working in a tradition that has been made popular by photographers such as James Southam or Martin Parr, you know, this quaint, perhaps mundane and banal view of the English countryside. Um, where do you think your work stands in this world of English landscape representation? In, in an age which, in a post-industrial age, which um, is characterised by increasing anxieties and suspicions. Well, it, I guess it depends on whether you're talking about my work as a whole or just or just we English. I mean, well, it was it was when we when we talk about your English work, um, it starts with we English, but it's a trilogy, isn't it? Three yeah. books: we well, English, yeah. Pierre Dum, and Mary yeah. Albion. Yeah, which uh, subtitle is "Landscape Studies of a Small Island," I believe. Yeah. So, yeah, how do you? How does that, well, is it a trilogy? Um, is it a trilogy? Not exactly, because, well, I mean, there are some, I mean, there are no pictures of We English in Mary Albion, um, but Mary Albion does consist of some pictures from, for instance, the election project and some of the other things I did. So, um I guess you could call it. I never really, I, I never really considered it as a trilogy, <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's three books about Britain, say, or or, or England and Britain. Um, I mean, I think I think we all make work at, at, at different. We're all responding to to different contexts. So, you know, Jem and Martin and um, Paul Graham and Anna Fox. You know, they were all making work at particular with a, with their own biography of experience about the kind of political standing of the time, and I and I I think it, as a as somebody that's a documentarian, it's difficult not to have that as a as a kind of influence, and so I think all my work. Is, is sitting within my own feeling about, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say, it's all subjective. You know, I'm not making objective work in the sense that um, somebody else driving around Britain with a camper van with a four by five camera, exactly the same as I did, maybe going to the same places would take a different stance, would take a different picture and would probably create some kind of sense of different feeling. So it, it's very biographical in that way. 
I guess the way I was trying to open it up with all the work that I make is by having some form of public interaction so that I do then have this parallel element which is an invitation to other people to comment on their own experience of their community, their country, their mm-hmm. sense of identity. So I guess alongside my own representation, you also have this other this 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 other element that kind of gets fed in. So with We English, that was a website where people could suggest things for me to photograph. So as I was driving around the country, I might get an invitation to go to a particular place and take a photograph, thereby challenging my own concept of what I thought would be interesting in Cornwall or in Cambridge. I mean, in Cambridge, for instance, I could have quite easily taken a, you know, a kind of a a typical photograph of a, you know, uh, in the centre of Cambridge, but this guy, you know, went on the website and said, oh, it's my 50th birthday party and I'm having a fancy dress on the banks of the River Cam. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's the picture in the book. And there's no, you know, there's no way I would have necessarily come across that um, if, if it hadn't been for that suggestion. And so, I, you know, I think that there is this dynamic where there's other voices being fed in, even if it's just, you know, even if it's my photograph in the sense of the what you know, the way I've taken it is, is, translated across all the body of work there's just the kind of the the conversations that go on within each of the pictures aren't necessarily my conversations how much of it is a view of a road trip is there any anything of that in the pictures well i guess with anything well going back to that happenstance and talking about joel sternfeld i mean i think it is important to be challenged also by a journey and you know so some of the pictures are are just things that I saw en route and and became quite important. I mean, the photograph of the two of the couple sat by their car having a cup of tea and looking at the landscape in the Yorkshire Dales. You know, it was just I just happened to drive past them and I just pulled over and got out and, and took that photograph. And it, you know, that picture's about looking. It's about us looking at them and them looking at the landscape and this these different periods of time. You know, they were talking to me about how little has changed in their view. But in your view as the view of the photograph, you can see a car and a, you know, two, two chairs and clothes. And so you're able to, to identify that picture a lot easier in terms of when it was taken than you would if you were still looking at the landscape, which has a much longer history in terms of, you know, when the dry stone walls were built or when the, um, uh, you know, the, trees would have been planted so there's a there's there's an interesting dialogue there in terms of how we 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 look at the picture and then also i would develop certain certain things certain ways of taking pictures so for instance when i was in in black gang china in um beauty spot you know i i thought well i'll go and photograph the beauty spot but that i did because i i remember going there as a child so some of the pictures are also autobiographical in the sense i went to places that that had that that have created my own sense of what it means to be English, you know, holidaying with my parents or going to visit my grandparents or school trips or, you know, certain kind of moments which those landscapes sit within my memory. But when I went to the beauty spot, I actually thought, well, I'm going to turn around and photograph the opposite direction, you know, deliberately 
find a way of challenging the reason for me being there. And the picture in the in the book is the picture of the car park, you know, which says more about that place than the view itself. Um, you know, so there are people sat outside their car having their lunch, and there's a group of bikers who've just had an ice cream, and there's and there's a sense that the the rural idyll is on the distance, and we're actually quite safe in the way that we interact with the landscape we don't go we don't go far from our car you know we're, we're often we're quite territorial in the way that we experience you know mm-hmm. we'll always stick to a path we'll never kind of go off the path through the woods you know there's this sense of um yeah. safety in the way that we experience it um but i mean again back to your point about kind of turner and constable i guess you know to some extent that that kind of there was also a kind of romantic movement um and i think that sense of romance still there's still the, those ideas are still noticeable in how people think about the landscape i mean even if crudely we look at the photographs from my we english book which people want to buy they are, they are always the ones that are that tip towards the more romantic you know it's very difficult to sell a picture of somebody in Milton Keynes being pulled by a, um, a zip wire, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not that difficult to sell a picture of a, you know, paragliders over the South Downs way, yeah. you know, devil's so, dyke, devil's dyke, yeah. you know, so there's these kind of interesting ways that people also react to the work. Yeah. Um, I thought and, that and about that picture, the, the most, the most striking, um, image in terms of traditional, aesthetics <clears throat> and that that remind me most of the aesthetics that, that that the romantic painters were were inspired by is that picture of devil's dyke so it's interesting it's it's, it's in the book i think yeah, yeah it's in the book and you know it nearly didn't go in the book because i thought it was it was over romantic and chris boot who i worked with to publish it was you know and helped me edit it it's like man you'd be You'd be stupid not to include that. It's a really yeah, important yeah. picture, and you know. So it was interesting, just even in terms of the selection of images, um, uh, you know, how something forms, yeah, and yeah. and how often. I mean, I think it's important that you do edit with other people. That there are other conversations because you can otherwise just disappear down a kind of bubble in a rabbit hole, um, and so to to have some outside influence in terms of what pictures create a certain kind of conversation with those before and after or, or within the kind of wider narrative. Yeah. You spoke about the history of the, the dry stone walls in the Yorkshire Dales. And there's a specific mood to the work. Um, this kind of nihilistic complacency that almost resembles a country that has forgotten its history, that doesn't care about its history anymore. And as a result, um, it's become afraid to look beyond the surface of things. Do you feel that about modern England, contemporary England? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think, I think on the... The majority, yes, but then at the same time, there are. I mean, if we take dry stone walls as a as, as a as a kind of that was just dead. That was just an example. I know, I know yeah, but if yeah. we, you know, for instance, there are, you know, we are now seeing the kind of return to traditional 
uh, crafts. You know, there there is a movement yeah, yeah. of people who are rejecting um, the idea of of the capitalist system in terms of how it. You know, yeah, yeah. we work till we're sixty five and then we you know retire mm-hmm. or die. You know, that actually there is more to life than that. That you know how we spend our time do we spend four five days a week in the office or do we try and change the way that our lives are set up and you know so so there is this sense you know communities living off grid in wales or in uh, in totnes you know there, there is a small but it is a very small yeah. number of people that are doing that on the whole we are kind of led by um a, a, a political system that is short-termism mm-hmm. and so you know as we've seen with this the, the school issue with the collapsing um concrete buildings you know the last 20 years has been and and you know the, to some extent we can say this is labor's fault as well is that we we are always making decisions based on getting elected again in yeah, four yeah. years time and so what that does is that it doesn't allow for um these bigger decisions about where we want to be as a country in 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 years to come and when it do, did happen with brexit which was had no planning behind it initially. It was just a kind of off the cuff comment, really. That David Cameron will have a referendum, and then suddenly, you know, it spiraled. I mean, of course, there were people who were already thinking that, but it, it took that spark to then create this kind of momentum. Um, but there was kind of no tom, no long term thinking about what that actually could mean and and how it could be delivered, and so it, it's been a disaster. As in, yeah, yeah. As in HS2, you know, the, all all of these. Whenever we try to do these kind of major major projects, it, we seem to fail at it. And now, why is that? Is that mm. because, um, I mean, how much is that the kind of the political system bound up with an economic system which are so intertwined? You know, yeah. politicians leave and go into business, and there's this but kind of um, there has to be glass doors. Uh, idea that um yeah but i think there has to be there's just this there's always going to be um the need for continuous adaptation the problem is that nobody knows quite how to adapt when they need to um we are stuck in our we tend to, to get stuck in our old ways but if we hover around the, this 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 lack of history that i brought up um there's images of of, of medieval cathedrals, of stone circles, but they're always somewhere in the background. Uh, and you also spoke about how, from your perspective, the nations of Wales and Scotland seem to have have a sense of who they are, whereas England is a little bit more complicated and there are conflicting visions of of who the English are and, and want to be, of course. Um, obviously, being proud of your history can lead to some really toxic places, but knowing who you are can also be a positive thing. Having a, having a grip on where you came from, where you are and where you're going is essential to being human. And so that's, mm. that's, why I, I asked the question of, of whether or not you see a country that doesn't quite know. It doesn't quite know where it's going because it doesn't quite know 
because it's forgotten where it's come from and it's forgotten the the positive value of itself. And you brought up obviously a capitalist system and capitalism does have the tendency to, you know, it, it encourages us not to look beyond the surface of things in a way, you know, we become mm. a, a cog in the market economy. Um, and so I suppose that's why I, 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 I see nihilistic complacency. You know, people, mm. people just, yeah, they just want to have fun. They want, they want to go out and enjoy themselves. I mean, who doesn't, but at the expense of forgetting who they are, um, which is always going to be fatal in the long run. Yeah. But it's a difficult one because it's almost about how history is told and oh yeah it's an open question how, about and, who we and, are and how we, how yeah. we understand history i mean let's take stonehenge for an example you know stonehenge seen as an icon of englishness uh even britishness was used you know by um jacob rees mogg to talk about you know <laughs> yeah. uh, to talk about brexit so here he is referencing yeah. this uh um Neolithic or monolithic? Uh, what's the word? I've just lost it. Um, um, is, it is it Neolithic? I'm not going. Anyway, this um, very old. <laughs> yeah, it was created by a, created by a um, culture that didn't even speak English. Yeah, yeah, and and was also based on immigration. Based, you know, Absolutely, was, was but that's what I mean. And, uh, that's yeah, what I, that's what I mean. I think it's, it's important to remember that. Um, but the thing is, we don't. Most people don't even know that. Yeah, you I don't. Know, I don't mean that in a kind of uh, cheap kind of, um, national. I don't mean remember your history as a yeah. national nationalistic trope or anything like that. I mean it exactly in that way that Englishness or Britishness and Scottishness, for that matter, um, depends on on newcomers and has yeah. depended on newcomers. You know. Yeah. Um, but but that's not a conversation that that we're willing to have or or maybe it's what why is that not being told it's basically because most of our educate or most of the way that we receive our messaging is is controlled by very few um media outlets that have a particular view that they want to push upon us and yeah. you know that is a very difficult thing to to push against you know when you've got the likes of you know the daily mail spouting their you know kind of graphic horrible nonsense you know mm -hmm. that it's it's that's a difficult thing to to counter um and I don't, yeah what what is the answer to that it's um whether you have an answer or not is not important it's that you dare to ask the question about who you are who you want to be and mm. where your community is going what does the future of your community look like? Um, and your, your your work about England d doesn't present us with a concrete answer, um, mm. but that's and I think that's, that's precisely why it makes think, it powerful. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I think any work that provides an answer becomes uninteresting. But it's, know, it's, it it's 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 the emphasis on recreation, uh, as Stephen Daniel is commented i know that's 
perhaps just his perspective, but there are certainly elements of that. There are people enjoying themselves. These are landscapes of leisure uh, for the most part. There are grave issues at stake, as we've been discussing, and it almost looks as if in that project, people have turned away from those issues. Mm. You know, there are, there, are, there are deep meanings to consider. There are deep questions to ask and nobody has, people are, people have lost, lost the sense of, of wonder. They've, they've, they've stopped daring to ask mm. those questions. Uh, in the same well, guess, sense, I that's guess... why it's, again, that's why it's like Sternfeld's work in that sense. It's just this kind of, this capitalistic complacency. Yeah. And not everything has to be so serious, but yeah. I mean, and of course those pictures did come out of, you know, uh, 10 years of new labour and, and there was, you know, the new Britannia and, and cool Britannia and all that. So there was certainly riding a, a wave of, um, of an economy where people were feeling wealthier. You know, there, there was there was this sense that we had a clear idea of who we were, but underneath that was already, already being kind of unsettled. We just didn't really know it or we didn't, maybe the politicians didn't see it. And I guess one of the reasons I made, carried on making work in Britain is that I kind of didn't really necessarily see it to the, to the extent that I could imagine that Brexit would, would go the way it did. Um, I mean, no, I was, I was very shocked. And so I think, you know, Mary Albion has a very different feeling to We English because that is a book about a 10 year transition, which takes through many of these upheavals. And so I think there you really get to see that sense of, I mean, it's a lot of sense of apathy. There's a sense of apathy, anger, mixed with um despair and then the odd kind of moments of of joy where you know there's these flickers of of moments like the olympics where people kind of see a better sense of the future and and then it's put out again um and i guess i wanted that book to to really feel like um so less like a road a road trip like we English and much more yeah. like a um understanding the landscape as a theatre set within which we try and express ourselves, whether that be through religion or politics or um you know immigration or you know struggle or so there's these kind of cast of characters that play out various roles within a set backdrop. Yeah. Do you think the best way to make sense of We English then is to understand the other two, the other two books, Pierdom and Mary Albion? Albion. No, not necessarily. I mean, I do think, I think it will stand alone on its own as a, as a representation of, how we 
how we feel connected to place. Mm-hmm. And often these places can be very local. I mean, it's not necessarily about, you know, traveling great distances. I mean, some of the pictures in the book are, are you know, are taken a few miles from where people live. So it's, it's to some extent, it's also about localism. It's about how people are rooted in certain um, environments and that they gain some sense of um, self in those places. These questions about Brexit are perhaps more poignant north of the border in Scotland because Scotland obviously a majority of people voted to remain and have you made any work in Scotland by the way well there was some some work in in Mary Albion was from Scotland but that was mostly around devolution you know votes around devolution and I also did something around immigration at the Red Row Flats in Glasgow Um, oh yeah I've seen the picture of the Red Row Flats um, yeah uh, and I've done some personal work um, on some of the islands, um, which has has never really gone anywhere. But um, but I, yeah, so I mean, for me, it was important to add works from each of these places into into Mary Albion because they were all part of that debate about where one goes um, in in these conversations. You know, with you know, so devolution was was such a kind of an argument in the same way that Brexit was, it was about us and them. It was a, it was a, a kind of polarizing uh, debate, which I think is never beneficial really. No, I agree with you. To have to put us to put a foot on kind of one side. I think it, everything is always so much more nuanced. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. And actually that's one thing that I've forgotten about during a conversation that during that decade between 2007 and 2017 there was also the Scottish independence referendum which was another turbulent time um I know you made work uh, for the 2010 election can you tell us what motivated that was that a commission or was that a personal project no that that was a commission for for parliament so that's um uh Every, every election, they, a cross-party committee of MPs votes on a one artist to make a body of work about the electoral process. And it's been going for about uh, 15 years now, maybe a bit longer. So there's, I think there's been seven now. And the idea is that, you know, the politics and particularly the process of an election is something that should be recorded uh, artistically um, um, and sit within the kind of collection of parliament, I suppose in a similar way to looking back at something like Hogarth's representation of the Oxford by-elections and, you know, that kind of sense of actually questioning uh, the kind of political system, um, maybe not always in a kind of satirical way, but, you know, that the, the, this is something that is important to be recorded and in, you know, every election it's a, it's a, a different medium. And I was selected in 2010. Um, and the idea is that you spend an extended period of time with each of the main party leaders. So, tradi- so up until I'd 
got it, it had been Labour, Liberal Democrats and, and Conservatives, and that you would travel around the country as they were campaigning for the month up until polling day. Uh, and when I did it, I decided to, to, to open up. I felt that that didn't say enough about our political system that we needed to be looking at um, a lot of the other parties. So the pictures took in Plaid Cymru and the SNP, the English Democrats, um, the Respect Party, you know, so all of these different um, political groups that had a different standing on different issues mm -hmm. and try to tap into what those issues were, whether it would be about, you know, the expenses scandal or, um, uh, you know, the migrant crisis or the closure of a mine um, in a particular community. Um, and so that, you know, was a process of me traveling around the country, making photographs in a similar way to We English. And at the same time, I mean, trying to explore the relationship between the media and politics in the sense that so often the way that we experience politics is through uh, a kind of filtered media. Um, and I wanted to widen that conversation and, and kind of look around, you know, what's the, what, what goes on outside these curated um, stage managed political bubbles um, hence using that same elevation and, and kind of large format but sitting the election within within the landscape of Britain so you know the architecture of each place was important to me the um, you know lo looking at you know what takes place what, uh, in, in different communities and I guess it was a counterpoint to we English because much of it was urban so whereas we english had been very much rural although several of the pictures were in cities just you know on in the parks or you know in the green spaces i wanted this work to feel or to be to, to have this kind of sense of the urban fabric of britain alongside um uh, the um the hinterlands mm -hmm. How comfortable was it making work in response to issues and policies that you might not have agreed with? I was fine with it. I mean, didn't I? I didn't have any problem. I mean, I, this and is I also perhaps a question about what it means to be a documentary photographer, too. Yeah, I mean, I felt you know I wanted to take a picture of the BNP. I mean, I was photographing three pretty unsavoury characters and. To, you know, some people would say, why are you giving them a platform? But they played a role in certain communities during that election. There was reasons why they people were voting for these particular mm -hmm. candidates. Um, and what did these communities look like? So what was, you know, where, where were these votes being um, taken from? And so for me, that was, that was an important element I mean, one of the challenges was that I, I, I had to be apolitical in the sense that I, I couldn't, you know, wave my own uh, politics mm -hmm. with, a, with a big flag. So, for instance, in the final edit, there are – so the, 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 the final piece is 25 photographs, one for each day of the election. The, there's actually 24 days of, of, of electioneering, but the 25th photograph represented the uh, coalition talks, which was uh, something that had never happened. And so – 
you know, there was an additional day where they tried to come up with a, a, a government. Um, but there are three pictures of Labour's, three pictures of Conservative, three pictures of Liberal Democrats, you know, just to make sure that there wasn't a kind of sense that I was was necessarily trying yeah. to. But when you again, when you look at the pictures, the subtleties in there, which you can see things which I've tried to make comments on myself, you know, so there are various little <laughs> yeah. signatures. Subliminal or messages. Subliminal <laughs> messages or, you know, something that I might have placed in the picture yeah, yeah. That deliberately that will, if you look closely, give you a kind of, yeah. give you more of that uh, Hogarthian um, response. Do you think that you were commissioned by your ability to stand back and look at the wider field from a distance, by your ability to, in other words, be apolitical. Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, well, I I don't know. I mean, there was because I know that you are, you are outspoken against yeah. very outspoken well, against I, I guess I political wasn't issues. So much back in t- two thousand and ten. I, I mean, we had an interview. We were interviewed by a panel. I mean, there was you know a number of us were put forward. Um, we had to put forward a proposal. So, I mean, they voted on my proposal, which um, w- was was basically what I was telling you about. So they yeah. they obviously felt that I didn't say I was going to be apolitical, but, you know, I talked about that sense of going beyond just the three main parties and actually, uh, you know, and that sense of, of the, the, the raised perspective and opening up the scenes. Um, but I also, I also created a website. So part of my pitch was that I was going to get pictures from the public and i think they really like that sense of 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 public engagement at a time when the public were very angry with politicians because it was coming out of the expenses scandal when you know there's so many stories of mp's just kind of taking money for their for themselves you know mm-hmm. from you know flipping houses or whatever it might be mm-hmm. um so so though there was that element which which probably kind of helped my case some of your recent work is much more pointed than the work in We English. Yeah. You began to move away from that way of working in 2017, the way that you're, you were previously known for, your large format 4x5 works. How, how has your work been evolving since then? Uh, well, I guess, I, you know, I was just very angry with the Brexit vote, um, I just couldn't understand it. And, and I suppose I, I was a bit frustrated that I hadn't, that I hadn't spotted it coming, you know, having traveled around the country so much and photographed in all these different places. And, yeah. I, and I guess m- maybe it was partly because of the, the way that I make pictures are not about being on the ground interacting. You know, I'm always slightly distant mm-hmm. in the, in the perspective. So, not that I don't have conversations with, you know, as I'm traveling around, but maybe that just, I could, you know, I could certainly see anger, but I didn't, I didn't read quite how that would go, but then who, you know, not many, like you say, not many people did. But anyway, so afterwards I just, um, I was, I felt that I needed to make some work about it. It was all, I, I guess it was like scratching an itch, you know, I just, I, initially i was just 
tickling it and by the end I really just wanted to get rid of that scab and and so that felt like I had to be more pointed in my political view um yeah you could no longer stay silent yeah stand on the fence um and I mean, I think there's a benefit from standing on the fence. I think, you know, and, and I have to say, if I'm, if I'm being honest with myself, even in terms of Brexit, you know, we, I think as a society, you know, it's all very well us bemoaning why people voted to leave. Mm-hmm. But that was partly because people weren't having conversations with, with each other. You know, why is that? Why, why was a community in Wales that had received so mm-hmm. much EU money uh, to build new roads why were they then going out and like voting against the eu yeah I this mean, is the real problem as with the current yeah. times is that we're we're also made to feel embarrassed to have open conversations too yeah you know people are afraid of saying the wrong thing um but um, and, and so you know i'm certainly aware that you know by that by being quite angry about it is not not necessarily the the best place to to stand. Um, and I and I think I'm kind of out. I think I've I've got it off my my chest now. I mean, it's still it's still frustrating, but I, I do think that as artists, we need to also go into these, you know, be more open about our conversations with with people who have different ideas than we do. Absolutely, um, and and. Um, and try and understand, you know, these perspectives and, and reach some kind of common ground. Otherwise, all we do is is enter into this populist, yeah, when mind, we, you know, mindset we push people, where we just... We push people towards the extremes. Yeah, um, and that's, you know, we can all see that that's just not, that's not somewhere that can be yeah. um, worth travelling towards. So... No, know, because that, that, will, that will breed toxic nationalisms yeah it has in my opinion but we actually haven't spoken about what the brexit work was uh well i made i made several works it was several chapters i mean the first one was the brexit lexicon where i i collected words from and phrases from various uh brexit papers politicians newspaper headlines both in britain and eu um, and then created this this A to Z lexicon um, of a few thousand phrases, which I then uh, got a newsreader at ITN uh, News at Ten to read in a in the ITN news studio, and he reads it from a teleprompt, so he's looking straight at the camera, and the idea is that he just reads it continuously as this as this transcript, and it becomes it became a kind of performance piece where. It takes him about an hour and fifty minutes to read it, um, and he's he, you know, he makes several mistakes and gets frustrated, and one point gets up to go to the loo, comes back, takes his tie off, and it's it, it's at the same time funny as it is um, embarrassing, as it is um, anger-inducing. Uh, in the sense that you know, let's just listening to this volume of nonsense that we were that, <laughs> that was thrown over us, um, but also the the amazing ability of slogans to cut through. I mean, take back control will 
go down as a great marketing <laughs> strategy. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit yeah, like yeah. FC UK, you know, the French connection or whatever. Mean, you know, there's somebody, you know, that uh, whatever his name was, um, Dominic Cummings, you know, really did nail it there. Um, um, and Lee, you know, the Remain campaign just didn't, didn't have the argument, didn't, didn't have the slogan. Um, so that, and then that, that work goes, is, is, is a, is a two screen video piece where in the gallery, you stand with looking at one side, uh, one screen, which is the teleprompt, and on the screen on the other side of the wall is the newsreader reading it, and they're mm. they're in sync, and uh, you know the room is bled green, um, and uh, yeah, you just kind of follow this this yeah. this um, enormous kind of. Um, run of commentary that you know takes you back to a time that we've that feels like quite a long time ago now i mean 2016 and then and then i made some posters which we put on the street and then i i created a a, an led machine which scrolls through all the the new words that were created using the the prefix b-r-e-x like brex Brexageddon, Brex apocalypse, Brex shit, you know. Yeah, I've seen the T-shirt. Yeah. So yeah, so it kind of varies bits of works, and then uh, and then and then and then COVID hit. Um, Yeah, how did that change your work? uh, Quite radically, really, because like everybody, I wasn't able to go anywhere, and at the same time, felt like I needed to make some work about this moment in time as as i mentioned at the beginning my you know i feel like i'm a storyteller and this was a story about a moment in history which was extremely profound and it it was a difficult time as it was for many uh but it was also quite a rewarding time and and i guess in those situations you're forced as a creative to find new ways of making you know translating these moments into into some form of work and the trick was trying to find a way of doing that and and I I I did several things I did this series on the sea where every day I'd post a picture on Instagram of Brighton seafront of just the sea basically with this with the same horizon um through every picture and just post it on Instagram and, and began a dialogue with people online um I then continued that for a year um, during all the lockdowns and created a website called A Daily Sea, which is basically every day you can go on it. It'll just give you a seascape. Um, And then I created these series of cyanotypes in my garden based on negatives I'd taken of clouds when I fly. And that was that was after hearing a, a, a news report about blue skies over Beijing for the first time in 20 years and the fact that you know there's kind of lack of flights and the reduction in pollution and what that meant for um you know the the world was breathing again as as they called it so I made these things called the celestials which yeah was these small cyanotypes of of clouds basically cloudscapes but I often layered them so they became otherworldly you know you wouldn't see that you know a kind of cirrus stratus and a cumulonimbus on top of one another you know but in my in my clouds you do um 
And then finally, I made a, I made a series in the V&A Museum of these statues uh, shrouded in plastic. Oh, yeah. Um, and when the, after the second, uh, third lockdown was released, we, I printed them on fabric and installed them in a National Trust property forest as these kind of almost apparitions uh, in, in this stately home you know, slightly playing on the, on the idea of the, the picturesque and, you know, these statues that are placed in gardens, stately homes, traditionally, you know, in the romantic period. And here I am putting new statues that are covered in plastic and, uh, animated in, in, in the, in the woods as you're walking around and you wanted them to kind of be like these apparitions but also kind of reminder of that sense of loneliness and isolation and the role that plastic played in modern society. And I guess also playing on the fact that museums were closed, you know, there was our kind of whole cultural um, experience almost ground to a halt, you know, apart from TV and, you know, the streaming some theatre productions, we we really were bereft of a lot of um, uh, art and culture. And, and of course that's had a huge impact on, on, how these museums are able to cope post pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, in terms yeah, of that's a really relevant point. job, job losses and, um, you know, reduction in grants from the government, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was, it actually was quite liberating to be making work that was very different. You know, so it's often you get, you get pigeonholed and you might, you, I guess you might also do that yourself you know, you get used to making work in a, in a certain way. And the, and also, and it's a horrible word, but the market, you know, the market expects certain types of work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, I've always actually had a, a a different style of practice alongside my landscape. It's just, you know, people don't really know about it. But I remember having a show in Switzerland once, once of this series I made called The Last Moment. And, you know, people just couldn't, just didn't know what to, they were like, where, where are your landscape pictures? Have you got any of those? You know, so we ended up opening a portfolio with some, you know, we English <laughs> and peered them in it, you know, that, and they sold and these other pictures didn't, you know, so it, it, once, once people get to know you for doing a certain type of thing, there's this expectation that that's what you're going to carry on doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a hard thing to break, particularly yeah. when you're financially um, dependent depends <laughs> on selling work yeah do you sell um, a lot of work you know uh yeah i sell a reasonable amount yeah, yeah. i mean it's you know selling uh, i mean print sales has has been an imp- i mean it's not the only but it's been an important element and you're represented last, by a gallery then uh, i'm represented by yeah flowers gallery in, in london and a, and a couple of in uh elsewhere and it, yeah that that has been the kind of main thrust of my way of making work you know i, I like I like the freedom of just working on my own projects. And so then it's a case of, well, how do I fund that? And, mm-hmm. and, and, and working with the galleries have been kind of a rewarding way to collaborate and to be able to provide myself with some independence. Who knows how long that will continue with, <laughs> with the cost of living crisis and uh, et cetera. But, you know, it's, um, so it's been, it's been an, it's, it's almost like I was then allowed to make different work. Yeah. And I'm glad I didn't drive around the streets taking, you know, photographs of, of empty London during COVID, you know, which is in some ways what would been, have been expected by me, 
you know, the, the landscape guy going to photograph empty landscapes with no people in them or the odd person with a, with a mask on. Yep. Um, and that would, that, that kind of picture would, would fit perfectly in Mary Albion Mark two, um, you know, in 10 years time. But actually I found making this other work um, really exciting and, and in a way translated how I felt during COVID in a much more visceral way. Um, and it also allowed me to experiment with different forms of showing work. You know, mm -hmm. the idea of I'm really into showing work in the public. And so doing posters on the street and doing, putting something in a forest. And I recently had an exhibition in a closed down H and M store in Chester. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's really exciting to be taking work into unexpected places. How constricted does it feel though, to feel that you're expected to work a particular way? Um, in the context, I mean, can, in the context of selling work, it can get quite claustrophobic. Work. Yeah, it can you know it's 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 difficult. I mean, I I've been, I I really like making video work, and I've made several videos over the years. But you know, it's, it's, I'm not going to sell a video work. It's really it's very, <laughs> and and you know, it's very it's even very difficult to to fund it. But sometimes, it for me, it's the only way. It's only the way that I can. Um, what's the word? transmit what it get across the you know the, what i'm trying to say idea, so for instance yeah. i made i made a i made a, a video piece recently about covid and it, um i mean it's not video in the traditional sense of the word because it's based on photographs but it's photographs and audio which is shown as a video installation and you know it's for me that that was the best way to to talk about what had gone on politically during this time mm -hmm. and but it's hard to show and it's hard almost impossible to sell so the i you know you have to but that doesn't mean i shouldn't make it the difficult thing is finding ways to make the work mm -hmm. and you know i've got the practicalities i've got three kids and a mortgage and i live in brighton which is not cheap and mm -hmm. you know so there's always it's always a juggling act to yeah to um and, you know, I'd love to have more free time. I'd love to have kind of more studio assistance and, and, you know, just be able to react to ideas much quicker than I can. But, you know, there is no trust fund behind me. I just yeah. got to, you know, you just got to kind of forge your own path, really, and just hope that I can I can keep making the work. And and the other thing is I just hope I keep coming up with ideas because, you know, it's... Oh, artists... Who, who knows? Artists who knows? are never without their ideas. Yeah. But I think... Some some projects, unfortunately, aren't sustainable without funding. You know, um, grant funding, for example, um, especially when there's no buyers for the work. As you mentioned, when you're in the context of uh, your video work, the this lack of expectation to to sell to sell that particular work. Um, you know, the question remains, you know, if you had all the money in the world, what kind of project would you make? Um, I, well, I, I don't think it would be any one project. I mean, I've got an, I've got a huge list of things that I'd love to do, um, which, you know, some of them just, I just don't have the budget for, but um, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you what they are. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, that's for the next um, episode. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, actually I, 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 I'll give you a, a story about brexit though i mean i 
I got funding from the uh, Art Academy of Antwerp um, to to do a two year research project looking at the new relationship and borders between Britain and Europe. And uh, so, yeah, it was this two year funding post uh, with an exhibition and, you know, very exciting. And then once I'd been awarded it, it went to the finance department of the Art Academy of Antwerp, who then figured out that there was no way that they could actually employ me and pay the money since because of Brexit. They couldn't get me a visa um, because I, it, the, the funding wasn't enough for me to be a whatever you whatever you call it, a, um, a skilled worker. You know, you needed a salary. Oh, so was this yeah, so this new level it. of bureaucracy. And, and, then it'd be, and, yeah. and th- there was just... There are so many however, stories like that. However hard we'd fa- tried, it was, just, it was just impossible. So straight away, I lost, um, you know, all this funding. So, you know, that for a start would be something that I would, yeah. you know, I would be, I'm really interested in that northern coast, that relationship between extending from the Normandy work, but looking, you know, along the kind of northern coast of Belgium and uh, Holland and Germany and thinking about those kind of big, you know, the kind of great industrial kind of areas, but also that, you know, the migration and, you know, there's just this changing dialogue between um, uh, between Britain and Europe. Um, but, yeah, I, I need some serious funding to do that. And, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, being an artist um, is uh, a series of defeats more than triumphs. It feels like <laughs> what a what a way to finish on, eh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm I'm really glad that we finally arranged this conversation. I've really enjoyed hearing about your work, and I'm looking forward to to seeing what you do next. Oh, no, thank you. Maybe I've when those um, project when those Unre- those unrevealed projects come about we can have another conversation yeah. about them but um and i need to uh yeah i think a couple of your questions i i didn't quite i haven't quite figured out an answer to so i, I will i will listen back to them and and for 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 volume two we'll uh i'll, I'll try and figure out uh my actual opinion yeah yeah well i'm glad i've uh made you think that is the purpose of these yeah, conversations no, it's, it's and I good. hope and you said something earlier in the conversation that you hope that your work invites people to ask their own questions and uh, I hope that anyone listening to this um, feels invited to respond to some of the questions that I've presented to you Simon um, in their own way according to their biography I think that was the language that you used you said that you know um, artists work in accordance with with their life story. So yeah, actually, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish with a quote from somebody else. Actually, I was just thinking that actually, um, it's a geographer. You know, I thought I've got I've got to inject a bit of geography into it. But you know, following on from that point you just made, so Doreen Massey, who who is a cultural geographer and has worked actually quite closely with Patrick Keeler, the filmmaker. Um, I don't know if you know his work, Robinson. Uh, he made several films of journeys around Britain. Um, but she says that um, uh, she she views landscape as a multiplicity of trajectories. Even more significantly, these stories in the landscape are not buried in a layered past, but are bursting through to speak to us now 
they are ongoing unfinished stories that in their unfinishedness address our today and i think that's kind of really interesting just you know perspective when we think about what yeah. we've gone through the last uh the last decade and the fact that you know the, these debates about the british and the english landscape are unfinished and ongoing and will continue to to be and it's important that artists of all forms are form you know a part of that conversation mm -hmm. well we english is indeed a, a final work but its meaning is still being told it's a it's an open-ended work and that's why i just wanted to go back and talk about it i think that quote i couldn't have described your practice uh, any better i know that quote isn't about your practice but i couldn't have described your practice better than that so yeah thanks again simon a scotsman praising we english there there we have it uh, i can't betray my father so great <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. all right well take care thanks for the conversation appreciate it if you found any value in my conversation with simon roberts feel free to follow the podcast on instagram at the Land Behind Podcast. Please also consider supporting the podcast on Patreon by visiting the link in the description. Until next time, thank you for listening.